Med Family is a show about a family journeying through medical school with kids and navigating married life. Tag along to see how we got here and where this journey is taking us. Hello, welcome to another week of Med Family. I'm Eric, hosting, of course, again with Karen. Hey, guys. And we have a, we have a slightly new setup with our, our microphones this week, and we have managed to get Karen a little bit closer to the microphone. Now when she moves, I can actually move the microphone to follow her. Yeah, it's a little ridiculous. And now she's <clears> sitting <throat> further and further away from the microphone. So it's this is in working my out good. face. <laughs> it doesn't need to be that close. It does. It helps. It helps. Oh. So this last week we wrapped up our, my last week of family medicine. And we took a shelf exam. And so we have a, kind of a few things we're going to go over this week. And hopefully make it at least as entertaining as possible. So one of the I just on the home on the home front, we had the AC went out in the car. My car and, again. Oh, yeah, Karen's our two thousand nineteen. Are not that old car, um, but apparently a rock came, came up and punched a hole through a the, portion of it. The compressor, not the compressor, the condenser. Condenser. Yeah, so now it's leaky. It leaked um, a bunch of Freon um, or refrigerant out, and it was not blowing cold at all. We, I think we ended up taking it into the dealership. Um, we were hoping that since they had worked on it prior that it was the same issue and then they would replace it for free. But it was not the same issue. So Eric has a, a car part I, to I fix. a project. <laughs> Which is great timing because I have a, a week off and now I have a chance to do a little bit of car work. It isn't actually all that hard. But kind of rewinding a little bit. The dealership found the the damage that caused the leak of the coolant or the refrigerant. So now we get to replace it. So they, they did quote us $1,000 to fix the vehicle themselves, which I think on maybe a different different week or a different time period, we probably would have just gone for it. Yeah, if Eric was still in... in- uh, rotations and studying. I mean, he is studying right now, but gone from seven to seven or six to six or whatever. Um, at that point, we would have paid to get it fixed because he does. He really does not have the time to take away from studying to fix the car. But I mean, he fixed all of our cars the previous what, however many years we've been together. Oh yeah, it's it's one of those perks of being poor. You get to be really good at work and mechanics and <laughs> you just go youtube things and figure out what's wrong with your vehicle and slowly over time you get better and better at it in this in this case since we had already gotten a repair done and this is a 2019 so this is relatively new we were really hoping that maybe the the repair would be covered like karen had said earlier but it wasn't it's not going to be a covered fix and it just just kind of happens to land on that week that we have a break between rotations it's kind of a, what the school calls a fall fall break so i get to try to wait for the refrigerant to run out in the attempt for the dealership to find the leak they had to refill it with refrigerant which is also nice because the dealership didn't charge us anything and we the dropped refrigerant it off we got a loaner cheap. car 
The refrigerant we found out is like $44 a can. I think it's like... Four cans? We, well, we got four cans because we need four cans to refill. Yeah. But yeah, it's around $44 a can because the newer vehicles now have like an R1234YF refrigerant versus a lot of the vehicles that most people have been driving just have a 134 refrigerant. I don't know what the difference is. I just don't want to destroy my cooling system, my um, my I, AC system. I think ours is technically technically more eco-friendly. Yeah. But it costs $41 more. <laughs> but you're not supposed to just like let it out all at once into the environment. It's apparently still kind of toxic to like ozone layers or whatever. So the plan is to just drive it until it stops blowing cold and then I can do my work. But and so we got the quote for like a thousand dollars from the dealership. And I'm I'm actually willing to say it's not an outrageous quote, just based off of the parts and whatnot I had to buy for the repair. It's only gonna cost us about half that to do the repair on the vehicle. So and just you know a little bit of know how, a little elbow grease and another fellow student. Uh, has volunteered to help me out for whatever I need so I have a couple I, I as part of getting the stuff for the repair I now have two new tools which is always fun I, I actually really enjoy having tools that yeah will hopefully have more service and uses than just this one yeah project. he refused to sell the tools when we moved to the island we oh. found a place to store those yeah, <laughs> and cool. those made the trip from Washington to to Georgia well when you have like a a skill you learned over the years and you're still going to be a poor medical student for many years to come like we did we did buy newer vehicles um we had budgeted and, and planned for buying these newer vehicles to avoid having to do a lot of costly repairs uh, and obviously when i go into maybe residency when you're you're working six days a week or whatever it might be you're not going to have a lot of time to do those repairs. So maybe at that point we will hopefully have, to, if we if we end up having repair, then maybe we can fork over a little bit of money for that. But hopefully we have new enough vehicles that we don't have to do those repairs. Yeah, the goal is to purchase a vehicle that will get us all the way through residency with minimal, minimal work. So, and yeah, I mean, this is obviously what's been going on this week. One of the things that's been going on this week I, I, just, I really wanted to highlight it mostly because we had talked previously about budgeting and one of the budgeting things that we did of course was you know buying these vehicles so we didn't have to do a lot of repairs but we did also put a little extra aside for these incidentals that you don't really think are going to come up you don't really plan for but you put a little bit of money aside it will you know you're not now now we're not going to be having to eat rice and beans for weeks and then to make up the difference we have a little bit of money still tucked aside. This, this doesn't break bankrupt us. Right. Same with like regular car maintenance, like tires and whatnot. That's also budgeted in because I mean the truck will the truck will need tires soon. I don't know about my vehicle, but I think your vehicle is pretty good still for yeah. a while. But it, yeah, it's having having that tucked aside in your budget for those incidental repairs, and also. You try to be resourceful as a medical student try to, you know, as a family anyway is you have a lot of people in your cohort that have a lot of life experiences like I obviously have a lot of experience working on my vehicles because before medical school I 
didn't make a lot of money, so it was important to be able to keep my cars up and running whenever they had an issue. And then taking that inf- that trade, that kind of skill, and then helping friends out was a pretty natural progression. And so in medical school, you know, if you have friends and people in your medical class that are in the same boat as you. They, they want to get to the rotations. They want to not have to spend a bunch of money to get their cars fixed. So sometimes it, you, you want to ask around to see who has what tools and what expertise. And hopefully you can do things a little bit cheaper than you know, paying a thousand dollars to have someone else fix your AC unit. Yeah. Well, and we, yeah, we've had, we've had fellow students borrow tools and, and whatnot. And we've oil changes. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got a good somewhat rotation of, (laughs) of people that help or we help. Yeah. And I just wanted to encourage people to, to use the resources they have around them and not, not just immediately just fork over thousands of your dollars. You, you know, you don't, you're on loans. You're, you're not, you don't make a lot of money. You don't make any money in medical school. So you don't have a lot of money to get rid of. And so if you can lean on some of your acquaintances and resources, then that'll save you just a few hundred dollars and make a big difference. The other thing I guess that we did, we, I mentioned uh, needing to get on an exercise program and we had started the challenge, I believe. And uh, uh, Karen, why don't you t- tell us who won this uh, this week? <laughs> Eric Glenn. It helps that he played, <laughs> what, three hours of sports on Friday and I yeah. wasn't able to go. That's probably but, not fair. But um, we're going to keep this challenge thing going as a weekly thing. I, I think we're going to have to figure out some sort of reward for whoever wins. But Pizza. Sure. Seems to go against the, the, the nature of this challenge. <laughs> um, but I don't know. It, it was interesting because our watches did like recalibrate for us, like what our goal. Yeah, different sh- move move. We have Apple watches, so they have like the move and active goals. And so it, at the end of the week, it kind of recalibrated and said you should probably move up to. For me, I moved up to like five ninety a day in the move. I'm not sure what that equates to. To be completely honest, it's five hundred ninety calories. Sure. Burned supposedly. Sure. Um. I was always having a, I, I never once completed my move, even if, so like on Monday I got 30 minutes of exercise to Eric's 10, but Eric completed his move and burned more calories than I did, I which him. makes, yeah. When you weigh the size of a small whale, it's <laughs> but, easier to burn calories <laughs> just by moving. Anyways, I think this week might be a little bit different. I mean, he has to burn more calories. Mine actually went down. So we were, we both started at 540 calories that we were supposed to burn. That was our move. And Eric, it was more difficult for me to do it. It actually recalibrated mine down to 510 calories. But I'm, I think both of us have lost a little weight. So that's progress. That's progress, right? <laughs> so especially with me making what caramel and macaroons and (laughs) i've been trying out different recipes because it well really i've been wanting to try out these recipes for a while now but i'm hosting a baby shower for a fellow student so i've just been having fun baking random things and honestly like she asked for mini cheesecakes and i'll probably do like mini pies and whatnot and it won't be any of the things that i've been baking but it'll be it it's been fun to to make new things up until this week Karen Karen loves baking, and which is great. It tastes good. It's not so good for the waistline, but up until this week, it's been wonderful because the kids will eat her cooking, and she'll eat maybe a little bit, and then some. She'll have some friends over, and they'll eat a whole bunch of others. You know, like so. By the time I get home, 
there's usually nothing left. <laughs> and that, that works out great for me. That, that kind of works right in my wheelhouse of no temptation. So therefore, I don't have to eat a whole bunch of stuff and get large, larger. But this week, since I'm home, got to be a little bit more careful about this, this caramel that's running wild. And... Well, the caramel's all gone. But I can freeze it. I've found this out. I can freeze it, so I should make another batch, and we should wrap it and freeze it. And then if I don't feel like baking for your next rotation, you can just pull it out of the freezer, and you can give that to your proctor. Yeah. we yeah, I think we mentioned last time we, we gave some baked goods to my, my preceptor. We, we did wrap up the, the, the week with the preceptor. I think we just did Tuesday-Wednesday clinic. And then he let us have Thursday off to study for the shelf exam. So we had a kind of abbreviated week. It wasn't even even on I think Thursday we didn't actually have uh, we didn't have a lot of patients to see. So it was a pretty short day on on Thursday. Uh, sorry, on Wednesday as well. So it more or less kind of wrapped up family med. Did you get your review back from him yet? No, I haven't seen I haven't seen the review. I think he filled it out on paper and sent it in. So I oh, okay. had to wait till the uh, office staff at Trinity to transcribe that and oh that might yeah yeah so I might, it might be a little while before I get to see that I'm, I'm really interested to hear the feedback because you never know sometimes that you know your preceptor might just say you're doing a really good job you have nothing to worry about but maybe there's uh he's not comfortable giving you certain feedback and what you could do better at certain things and usually I'm better at asking my bosses or managers to um give me that feedback so i don't have to find out on my annual review but in this case i didn't do that and so i'll have to wait and to see what's been what gets posted and hopefully i get some good feedback and i'm actually not looking for like i mean i would love to have 100 percent and get an a with honors and in paleo medicine yeah that would be great but i, I do want to improve so some critical um points if there's any sort any sort of really and a constructive criticism hopefully i get some of that so i can try to grow a little bit and get better for the next next rotation which um should be psychiatry the school is supposed to let me know this week if that changes or not so it should be psychiatry i should we'll start online for that so we wrapped up family medicine with the shelf exam which is a an nbm n b m e style exam it's from nbme.org and for family medicine, it's 90 questions, about two hours and 15 minutes to do the, the entire set of 90 questions. And you just sit down and you start and you go through the whole thing. It is proctored, so we do it over Zoom. And so someone gets to watch you <laughs> as you're taking the exam. I'm sure we have strange looks on our faces as we're looking at questions. And thankfully, we don't get to see each other during the Zoom call. <laughs> but I'm sure the, the preceptor who was watching was probably amused by some of the, the looks on our faces as we're going through these questions it is a tough I, I will say like the family medicine shelf was tough there were a lot of questions that were kind of toss-ups and you can narrow it down to like one or two and then of course like i think everyone had recommended the usps tf guidelines and that's pretty solid advice i i saw plenty of questions in there that kind of harken back to those guidelines and if you didn't know them really well then you might miss a question or two because it, it, they're throwing date some patients age how long they how long has it been since the last mammogram patient history of 
you know, family history of colon cancer and how long the last colonoscopy was. And so you're, you're really having to try to go through that data and go, okay, do I need to, is, and then what's the next step in the treatment or management of this patient? And you got to try to figure out, should this person get a mamma, mammogram, an ultrasound of the breast? Should they get a pap smear? Should they, <laughs> should they get a colonoscopy? Do they need vaccines? Which vaccine do they need? So there's a lot of, um, I can't, I can't guess stress enough, the USPSTF for family medicine guidelines, those, those were definitely tested on and knowing them would definitely be a help. And there's of course a lot of other uh, information that you need to know for family medicine. It's such a broad topic, anything from, you know, the, the geriatric level patients all the way to the pediatric. And I did really good to when they, when you, when you get your score. They give you these little bar graphs, and that's probably not the right term, but it's basically a bar, and how well you did compared to compared the to the average or the any any you know, the average people who took the same exam, and uh, so your bar could be like kind of in the middle where it was like about average to a little bit above average or you know below average or whatever, <laughs> and for pediatrics. I can, I can, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I was in the above average area and that, that felt pretty good to get that result back for the geriatrics. I, I, it could use some more work. Uh, that's about as much as I can say about that. Uh, <laughs> well, it was interesting. Cause I think one of the conversations that we had after you got your test score back is this being your first shelf exam, you could see how it would be advantageous to those who had like the pediatric or the OB or any other rotation that was kind of encompassed under family med. How, if, because if they're studying, if they have studied and tested for those shelf exams, a lot of that information is included in family med. And so it might actually, that, that same test might actually be easier for somebody farther yeah. down the, the road. If some, yeah, somebody took internal med, and then pediatrics. Like I think even those two just combined would give you a pretty good edge in the family medicine shelf. Well, I feel like internal med is such a broad topic as it well. Is. And so the more rotations you have under your belt, probably the easier that one would be as well. Oh, I'm sure. Because yeah, family med is about 12 weeks of a rotation. Um, internal medicine, you mean? Internal med, yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's... I'll, I'll be honest. Like I didn't... I wasn't really sure I would pass. <laughs> Like when I, I took the exam, I came out of it and it was like, wow, that was hard. There were a lot of questions I just wasn't sure about. I could just easily failed that one as passed it. It wasn't, I, I, I my um, threshold, my, my, my bar where I try to judge everything by is my microbiology NBME in fourth term. And in that, in that NBME, I just walked out and I, I felt great. Like there was no way I didn't pass it. I felt, you know, very confident leaving that NBME and, you know, sure enough, I, I passed it. No problem. So now I judge basically all my NBMEs or all my shelf exams, uh, CBSE exams, all kind of based off of that feeling. And like, if I didn't walk out feeling really good, I'm nervous. I'm, I'm just, you know, the two days you wait to get your exam scores is kind of, it's kind of nerve wracking. It's, I mean, in shelf, you wait two weeks, so it's a little, you have a lot of, a lot of time to stress out during, uh, not shelf, step one, sorry. But, well, in step one, Eric actually had to wait six weeks. 
Oh, that's right. Yeah, we because it was normally it was it's, it's normally about two about to three, two, but we were in that gap that had the six week wait. Yeah, they had a brand new test, so they needed to get enough, enough people, people to take it. Yeah, so that was a little rough. But having to wait two weeks, sorry, uh, two days, isn't really all that bad. But you do spend a lot of time refreshing your email, and then you can't. You, you're he he to... started planning out like if I have to retake this one, <laughs> how is that going to work with next next rotation? He had nothing to worry about. He was you were happy with your score. I mean, you would have loved to pass with honors, but you you he. I got a pass. Um, it's not. A, it wasn't a high pass. It wasn't a pass of you know an honors pass. Uh, I which I was kind of I was hoping for those, but you know after I took the exam, I was very happy to have just a pass, and it wasn't. It wasn't like a bare. I didn't barely. I think the the pass threshold was anything above a fifty nine percent, and I think that percent is scaled based on who takes the exam. So I, I definitely got better than that by a long shot. I didn't get my high pass or my pass with honors, which is what I was really hoping for. But again, after leaving that exam, feeling as bad as I did about how I felt about the exam, I was really happy to get the score I got. Some kind of points I. I I kind of wrote down, I thought about the, the exam that were, I think, beneficial and then maybe not so beneficial. So having children actually was a huge plus in some of this stuff. So knowing, like breastfeeding, like just being a little bit aware of what my wife was going through for breastfeeding and some of the, uh, for for example, you might run across a question that's like, woman, you know, three weeks postpartum comes in she's been breastfeeding and she says she's got tenderness uh, like a lump and tenderness and a fever in her breast what 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 recommendation would you give the this woman and you have a lot you know a large sample of answer choices and usually the right answer choice for for that is that you you suspect mastitis uh, which is common in pregnant women uh, postpartum women who are breastfeeding and the treatment is usually antibiotics, at least ones that don't transfer into the breast milk and into the baby. And then you encourage the mother to continue to breastfeed. Those are the, <laughs> the general recommendations. And they make a point of saying that. Um, I don't think it's ever explicitly explained why you tell the mother to continue to breastfeed. But uh, Karen, you could probably just weigh in on here. like, Because you, you've had mastitis before. It sucks. <laughs> Feels like somebody has punched you good it's because it's a clogged duct right so yeah it's a clogged duct. it's clogged duct so you want to keep everything flowing and then if you stop breastfeeding then milk production milk, stops milk you basically are just storing all of that in until your body basically reabsorbs it so that it just creates more pain yeah back pressure and pain and well and they tell you to continue to breastfeed because you would think oh, well you know shouldn't you just naturally you could assume that the mom would just continue to breastfeed well it hurts it hurts more (laughs) so you tend to avoid what whatever side if i only had it in one side so you tend to avoid that side because it hurts and i mean i mean with breastfeeding you have a lot of you could have like cracked nipples you could have you could dry you know there's dryness crack bleeding all sorts of things that women have to kind of push through and because like Karen said it hurts there's a real big temptation for a lot of women to just be like I'm done I'm done breastfeeding yeah yeah and I know I know some of my friends did did stop 
when they got masses because it just hurt. But um, I don't know. I, I think that there's this intrinsic feeling that women have that it should be easy. It should come naturally. And it, I don't, at least not for, it didn't come naturally for me. <laughs> and then all of our boys had tongue ties, so they didn't latch very well. And we didn't find out with our first one until like two weeks later. And by that point I was cracked. I was bleeding. It was extremely painful. Like I braced myself every single time he latched. It was, it was it was pretty bad. And when the doctor said, oh, well, he's not latching well because he's tongue tied and they didn't catch it in the hospital. And so by that point, like I was near tears every single time. And so like you, I I can understand why women give up, especially if they don't necessarily have the support or somebody to turn to, or they don't like, there was a lot of things with our first pregnancy first postpartum that we had to learn together as a couple or that I had to learn like just simple things like I think it would be a lot harder too if you were like the first person in your cohort that right as your friend group that got pregnant and had kids you don't have other moms who are like oh yeah by the way this is what you should be looking out for this is what you need to be worried about so it does make it harder if you are the first one. We were we were not thankfully the we first one. We were not the first ones and actually one of one of our friends told told me so I didn't I didn't pass all of the placenta with our first and I was bleeding but we I didn't know what was too much bleeding and at that point neither did Eric and so it took one of our friends telling me that you are deathly white. You need to go into the hospital. Like, are you still bleeding? You still, you need to go into the hospital. And so I Which went. Which we, of course, did not take that advice. We called the advice nurse. <laughs> made an appointment. and <laughs> I, I went into the clinic and I got medication to help help me cramp and, and pass that. I mean, there was a lot of things on our first that we never had to deal with after, like, after that because we knew better. Um and then simple things that you wouldn't necessarily think of, like even at night, like our first one, we could not, I could not get him to sleep. Like he, I remember like being up rocking him and us taking turns and driving around the neighborhood and all that stuff. And we didn't do that with the others. And it was for the simple fact that you feed them on one side, you change the diaper to wake them back up, and then you feed them on the other side and their tummy is full and you put them back to bed and then you have at least two hours to three hours where you can sleep. Where at first, like, they fell asleep, so you put them down, and then 30 minutes later they're hungry again because they didn't get, like, but it's things that you don't, you're so tired you don't think of, you don't think that way, and it just takes somebody to say it to be like, oh, well, that makes sense. Well, and, and then again, there's that notion that this is all instincts. Like, you're, you, as a woman, you're just going to birth a child, and then suddenly a switch is going to be flipped, and you're going to know exactly how to care for the child in every sense. And by and large, you know, you, you, you're an adult, and you can kind of figure out things. And But I think childbirth, child rear, you know, especially in the first few months, like taking this baby home, it helps to have a little bit of support and a little bit of extra information. Um, again, what to watch out for, what to, <laughs> what to, and it, it, not just for the baby, also for the mom. Like, cause there's postpartum depression, there's this bleeding, like Karen mentioned, and then of course there's this mastitis thing that women can get any point during their their breastfeeding period. 
kind of going back to the shelf a little bit like again the, the children having children was helpful because there's also like milestones that they ask you questions about they'll give you a presentation of a kid and you know the ability to read say words what the age of the kid and then they ask you you know to decide if the motor development is normal or abnormal social development is normal or abnormal and speech normal or abnormal and that is pretty you know that has been pretty helpful um our kids have generally not been normal uh <laughs> <laughs> like motor skills i would say probably more advanced like they were able to walk earlier than the average kid would have they've been able to climb and been very physically active they can pick up things they can throw things like on the motor skills our kids have been pretty good um on the social i think they've been pretty good it's just the verbal uh, our well, boys have a, a our, our first and our third i think that our, our, our youngest, youngest is not going to have an issue like he he babbles he a lot. babbles like nobody's he, business hear, he can actually say letters and he's he's actually saying things but he's you know he's very quiet but i don't think our youngest is going to have as much of an issue as the, the first and third but that's a that's one kind of an example of knowing the milestones as a father um and also just kind of thinking back like when did my son have this okay that's about the right age <laughs> as far as like numbers like i i don't know i was i've always struggled especially whenever i had to go into the pediatrician office and be like well how many words can you say and it's like i haven't counted uh, <laughs> and then you start trying to catalog in your head like okay they say they can say card they say cereal they count to 10 they can say their abcs they like what how many what can they like right, you're, you're mom and to, dad and bye and you gotta try to figure it out on the fly it's not not fun but you got yes you just gotta do it but um that kind of helped as far as the shelf I mean, one thing i think that probably maybe didn't help me for the shelf and this is kind of ironic and this is not meant to be i think my preceptor did anything wrong but i mean preceptor for family medicine one of the things that kind of kept coming up because we're in the age of COVID and we'd see lots of patients and in conversations with them if they were going to get the vaccines and they if they were worried about bad reactions to the vaccine, just as far as like flu-like illnesses, soreness, stiffness, there was a there was a lot of concern around that. So our, my our preceptor would tell a lot of the patients to a couple of days before your vaccine go ahead and take some tylenol and some benadryl don't you know don't don't overdo it but just take it a day or two before and pre-medicate and this i think can maybe be not and the reason why i bring this up is maybe this didn't wasn't a benefit to me because i don't think that this was a correct answer choice i chose to you know well my preset they pre-medicated a whole bunch of patients so i can't see why it would hurt to get the patient tylenol and benadryl and then they can get the shot um i don't know if that was the right answer or not um based on some conversations with my some cohort i was just we were just kind of talking about that notion and the consensus from my peers was no they can suck it up and take the shot and so uh, that, so th things to kind of keep an eye out on your, when on your shelf exams is there's going to be times where the practice of medicine deviates from the ideals of medicine. Like there's going to be ways things are practiced in the office that might deviate a little bit from 
the norm or the guidelines will say and it's sometimes it's based off of position experience like i would say like it's there's nothing necessarily gonna hurt the patient by taking benadryl and tylenol well and too like if that is a barrier for the like at this point in time i'll it is best practice if to be vaccinated and if it's a barrier for you to get vaccinated because you're worried about the side effects, take away the barrier and get them vaccinated. Um, I know like in the state we're from, they're mandating the vaccine for like healthcare workers and for school teachers, school teachers and for certain professions. And, emergency, and so emergency response people to so police, fire, ambulance. Yeah. So in those instances, if, if, if if you're removing a barrier then and it's not going to hurt them then why would you just not yeah it, it, again it, it just follows like well it, it, there's a there's a notion i think in medicine i think it's not not a bad one either where you shouldn't provide more than is what is necessary so like it's not necessary for them to take benadryl they didn't have an actual major allergic reaction it's probably not necessary for them to take Benadryl and Tylenol. It's so I, I really unless you had a contraindication to those medications, I I can't imagine why it would be a big deal because uh, people take Benadryl all the time and Tylenol all the time. Again, don't exceed the maximum dosage. Don't um, don't take it for you know for kicks and giggles. But uh, again, like just as a pre medication, I can't see why it would hurt. But I can also see why on the boards and on the shelf exam why they would just be like. There's no indication for it, so you don't recommend it. So uh, just something to keep in mind, try to keep in your head. What is practiced isn't always what is going to be tested on the exam. And so how you did it in the clinic may not be how you should answer it on the exam. So the other thing I kind of thought along the way is a few weeks ago when we were in the online portion of the, of the family medicine rotation, I had talked about a study plan I we had implemented and so it's always good to take stock in the results of your exam, take stock in the results of that entire rotation and decide, did that process work? How was it successful? And should we change anything? I don't have really much to report besides I think I was, we started the, I started the plan a little bit late. We started maybe a week into the rotation. So earlier implementation would have been probably better. I think the other thing that you had said was you felt rush towards the end of the exam and so you wanted to try and include more timed that study that's a good point yeah because i got to the like the last i don't know the last 10 questions and i felt like i was definitely running out of time so i i started picking up the pace on the last 10 questions and i got to the last five i was very low on time so i picked answer choices all the way to question number 90 and then once i got to number 90 you picked an answer read read the vignette decided whether or not that answer seemed reasonable on the very quick read and then go back and went to question 89 87 86 and doing the same process of a quick read of the vignette and a quick decision of whether that answer seemed to make sense i do not know if i got those right so but like karen said i time management is really important on all these exams and some of the the cheat methods that you might have employed in earlier uh, exams in medical school or even in undergrad pr- 
problem may not work on these shelf exams and that, the reason why i say that is a lot of the shelf exams are geared towards treatment and next step uh, so what what's the next thing that this patient needs to do or what's the next step in health management or whatnot and so you can't come to a conclusion on what is next needed for this patient unless you know what has been done and so some of the tricks a lot of medical students take is you read the first sentence you read the last sentence and sometimes you can just jump right to an answer or you can read a couple of sentences skim over it and go yeah i can get an answer uh, I, I definitely felt like the shelf exam really kind of drew you into you have to read all of the vignette you can't you can't just skip and so i think if i was going to go forward the biggest change i would do when i'm doing my question bank questions and uh, to put them as timed to try to get myself in the mentality of getting through these questions quickly and so that i i guess i'm not spending two like two to three minutes on every question and then having to rush through the last five or ten that would be my biggest change i think everything else i did was beneficial i did not get to the uh, case files uh, that was the last thing i was supposed to be doing was case files i never really got to them i think they probably would have been of, of help for sure and that might have been what could have pushed me over into the high high pass range but i didn't get to those so uh, i will try to rectify that in this next rotation well, I think you probably will get there in this next rotation because you are you've already started studying and your three weeks online hasn't even started yet. Right. Yeah. So and it's psych. Psych is a, a if I believe the notes from previous students, it's not as hard of a rotation. The pass numbers are a little bit higher. So the number it takes to pass isn't going to be 58 percent. It's going to be a bit higher than that. But that could also just mean that it's a little bit easier to pass because the answer is a little bit more obvious. So we're going to just, again, we're going to work hard at it. We're going to try to pass it first time. No problem. Hopefully we're aiming for that honors. And um, it would be nice if I can at least get into that high pass range. I would love to get in the honors range, but it would be nice to get in the high pass. I guess other things that Karen, Karen mentioned, we, uh, we, I was starting a little bit of studying this week. I'm not trying to overdo it. This is supposed to be a break week, so I'm trying to spend a little bit of extra time with the kids and the family. Give them, and then if we can get get to that car, once the refrigerant runs out, I'm going to work on the car, obviously. But the other things I've been trying to work on this week is research and then just kind of keeping an eye on uh, residencies. As I mean, we're a little bit early to really consider exactly which program and residency I'm going to end up at or want to apply to really but trying to keep an eye on that one of the things I, I guess I ran into the last couple weeks because I was uh, working on trying to get on a few research projects is sometimes with human research you have to have uh, I'm not really fluent so this is just me talking about what I've been told uh, there's like a, a program called City S-I-T-I kind of like Citibank but not it's for Basically, best I can tell is like webinars for bioethics and research ethics and certain credentials you have to have in order to do certain types of research. I'm not really clear on that, but the person, the family medicine resident that I've been talking to uh, has asked me to sign up for 
into this program and then I think he's going to let me know which credentials he wants me to get, which webinars he wants me to pay for. So sometimes your school might have an affiliation with the city program so you don't have to pay for this stuff out of pocket. And sometimes your undergrad institution might actually have affiliations if you're still maybe affiliated with your undergrad or you have a undergrad email address, you might still be able to kind of access these programs and not have to pay the money for this. But essentially, these research, if you're doing research on people, sometimes it this is required. So this is kind of a, this was kind of thrown at me. I didn't really realize this was a thing until the family medicine resident mentioned it. So I'm playing a little bit of catch up. I'm trying not to be a pain in his butt. He is obviously a resident who has resident hours and sees lots of patients. And on top of that, he has to do this research. Uh, and I'm trying to jump on board and do something to so get my name on some sort of publication. <laughs> so I'm trying to leech off of his work and try to be of some benefit. And part of that is not to make a whole lot of work for him. Like I don't want him feeling like in order to get some help from me, he has to do a whole lot of work. And so at, one, at what point is he just going to say, forget about it. I don't, I don't need your help. So I'm trying to make it as easy and painless as for him as possible. But just something I guess they throw out there. If you're thinking about doing research, maybe you can keep this in the back of your mind. City program, make sure, try to see if your undergrad is still active, your email. And if your institution, whether it's a medical school or whatnot, is affiliated with these so you can hopefully be doing some of this credentialing without having to pay money and then and then also try and do the credentialing while you're on a break yeah just try to try to get that stuff out of the way i i haven't started it obviously I, i've gotten registered with it i just haven't done any credentials because i don't know which ones he needs me to do and then the other thing we kind of mentioned is kind of keep an eye on residency programs and I was just made aware of just today actually by a fellow student I drove to the airport that AAMC which most medical students might remember that as the the uh, medical school application server or program I, I'm not sure it's it's basically a big website they uh, get you all set up to apply to medical schools all across the MD programs all across America and they have what's called a, the Explorer for residency program um, if you were, if you're at all familiar with their products, when applying for medical school, they, at least when I did, you had to pay money to basically get access to kind of statistics on a lot of medical schools that were in one spot. It wasn't a lot of money, but it was some money. This is free, and this is actually a pretty cool system. Essentially, you put in a lot of your information, not a lot, just some basic stats like if you're an I, I'm an I am an IMG, so I'm a U.S. resident, uh, U.S. citizen IMG. Uh, you put down like how many work experiences you're probably going to put on the application, how many volunteering experiences, how many research publications you're attached to, how many research projects you've done, and then you pick a, a field of of some kind of discipline or whatever uh, program you're kind of interested in for residency. And it'll pull up all the programs that are a part of the residency match. And they will tell you, based on what you inputted, if you are in the top 25%, the middle 50 or the bottom 25% in each of those categories I mentioned before. And then they will also tell you how many of their residents are IMGs. 
And so and that, that's valuable information because as IMGs, we, we should know that this is an uphill battle. Um, we're all IMGs for one reason or another, and we all should know at this point, especially in third year medical school, that it's an uphill battle to get into a residency as opposed to a U.S. resident or U.S. medical school student. So that, in keeping in mind, you have to try to find programs that actually have taken IMGs before. I mean, if it's a brand new program, maybe give it a shot, but this program's been around for a long time and they have 0% of their residents are IMGs. It says pretty strongly that that program has a bias against international medical grads. So unless you're like scoring super well on your steps one and two and you have, you feel like you have a good in, I, and again, I'm not an expert, but you, you can take this, take this or leave it. I would say if, it, if a program is showing like 0% IMGs, don't, don't bother wasting your money. Like they obviously do not want you. They do, at least they don't want me. <laughs> so if you have some good connections and go for it, but. Yeah. Well, and the other reason why we're looking at this now is, <clears throat> and obviously we'll update it as we have more information, but kind of looking at it now, it kind of gives us an idea of if we were to, because electives are coming up in fourth year. And so we can kind of look at trying to get Eric into an elective in one of these areas that he would like to go in into. And so then you also have the oh, I know who this person is. They're within my, in the normal stats that we take or accept. And then you kind of have a better shot at getting that residency. So that's kind of what we're thinking of possibly. You, I mean, we're going to use it for its intended purpose, but this is also another purpose that we were kind of looking at to use it for. That's, that's actually probably a good point as well. It's more, more valuable than thinking about your residency application right now is thinking about elective rotations and getting those lined up. That's a really good point. And so that's something to keep in mind and maybe look at if you have some downtime. I definitely wouldn't spend a lot of time obsessing over it, but there's, again, AAMC, ERAS, and then they have a residency explorer, and you just kind of put in your information. You, you sign in, you put in your information, and you can kind of start toying around a little bit with it, and you get, you get some good information out of it, I think. That's a, more or less... What we have going on, it's already pretty much been about 50 minutes or so, so I've been talking for most of it. I think just looking ahead, I am working on a kind of a special project. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because I've tried going on this route where I do a special project for this podcast and it hasn't really worked out. But I'm, I made some, some steps in kind of doing some things with the special project and I, I'm hoping uh, in maybe a week or so I can start really making... Uh, some edits and some work on it and hopefully that will be interesting to the the viewer yeah i don't want i don't want to put too much and i want to promise too much in case it falls through but i'm pretty excited about it i'm hoping to add a little extra content for this podcast and hopefully make it a little bit in more i think i think karen brings a lot of interesting things <laughs> to this podcast but i'm, I'm not a medical student hopefully we'll get a couple a couple guests on here soon so yeah that's, that's essentially this week I think, yeah, next week we're, uh, we won't be in rotation. We don't have much to talk about, but hopefully we'll try to make it interesting for you. Have a good week. Right. Bye.